Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast, dedicated to equipping independent financial advisors with the tips, insights, and knowledge to help you achieve success in business and life. Host Jeff Concepcion shares 30 years of experience as an advisor, entrepreneur, and CEO. Join Jeff and the industry's top thought leaders as they help you evolve from where you are today to where you want to be tomorrow. Now here's your host, Jeff Concepcion. Hi, this is Jeff Concepcion. Welcome to the Evolving Advisor Podcast. Uh, very excited to have Carl Heckenberg joining us today, who's not only a friend, but also now our business partner at Stratos. Carl is the president and CEO of Emigrant Partners and its affiliated company, Fiduciary Network. In addition, Carl sits on the board of managers of the aforementioned companies. Carl has worked in the financial services industry through his entire career. He spent time previously at firms Merrill Lynch, A.G. Edward & Sons, Wells Fargo, and Charles Schwab. Carl also serves on the boards of the Sarasota Private Trust Company, the New York Private Trust Company, and Cleveland Private Trust Company. He's a senior executive vice president of Emigrant Bank. Carl was raised in Washington, D.C., graduated from St. Joe's University in Philadelphia, and lives in New York currently with his wife and his daughter. So, Carl, thank you for visiting and chatting with us today. No, thank you for the invitation. I'm excited. Yeah, likewise, bud. Likewise. So it's funny. Yeah. I've done a few podcasts recently. People keep on saying, tell us about your partnership with Emigrant. <laughs> and I start off by saying, it's just, I don't have a lot of experience to compare it to. But if, <laughs> if, if the partnership is anywhere near as fun and easy as the hard stuff was, kind of the paperwork yeah. and the discussions yeah. and negotiation of which there was like virtually none, it was just a great, yeah. easy process. I think we've got a wonderful partnership for the long haul. So, no, I, I, I agree. You actually kind of, I, I think you see what re people are really made of in, in those circumstances. And, you know, we, we had a wonderful time working with uh, you and your entire team. So, you know, I think I told you when, when we wrapped all that up, we were thrilled to get over with the boring stuff and actually move on to the fun stuff, which I would include this as part of. Yeah, there's there's no doubt. And I just think, you know, the chemistry and the relationships, it's so, so important because you've got the business side yeah. of it, but every day it's human beings yeah. interacting. And if, and if that yeah. happens on a relaxed basis, these things can be so much fun and so productive as well. Absolutely. So, so tell us a little bit about your time thus far at Emigrant. Obviously, they've got a, a, a yeah. great, great brand and they're you know, several generations yeah. into the banking side, but this foray into wealth management is a little bit more recent yeah. and Talk a little bit about yeah. fiduciary network and then emigrant partners uh, as sure. you've experienced it. Yeah, no, uh, you know, as you would kind of mentioned, the Milstein family is a fourth generation real estate family. They bought Immigrant Bank, which was uh, an interesting story in itself. It was a bank founded by um, the Catholic uh, Church and Irish immigrants and family bought it and recapitalized it in 87. And then in about 2006, you know, the family really believed that the RIA space was almost a, a more mass affluent version of a single family office. And what I mean by that is, you know, you 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 really segregate custody, um, investment management and financial planning and, and you have an open architecture. So the family really started a couple of businesses centered around in, uh, independent wealth management at that time. One was New York Private Trust, which it, you know, is a private label trust company that works with banks, broker dealers, and RIAs. The other one was HPM Partners, which is now called Sarity Partners, a wonderful business run by a fantastic human being, Kurt Masensky. 
And then the third was fiduciary network, which was, you know, the idea was kind of, you know, brought forth by Mark Hurley. Uh, he had written a number of white papers. Mark's a, kind of a great thought leader in the industry. And, you know, the idea was to help finance independent wealth management companies and stay independent. So provide some founder liquidity, keep the firms independent, help finance the next generation. Because, um, I mean, I'm sure as you, you remember, you know, at the time, the, the options weren't fast. You started an independent business and you either sold it to a bank or you sold it at a pretty deep discount internally. So, again, these businesses were started about 13 years ago, you know. We bought out the former management team about a year and a half ago and decided to kind of operate, you know, fiduciary network and immigrant partners side by side. And, um, you know, I think we're up to 55 billion in AUA right now with, uh, it'll be this week, 17 firms. So it's, it's been an amazing ride. That is incredible. So just to kind of bring things up to speed, can you talk a little bit about some yeah. of your experience in the industry prior to joining Immigrant yeah. and maybe some of the learnings along yeah. the way that have helped position you to sit in the, the chair that you do today? Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate. I, I think I was one of the last classes in, you know, the mid-90s where banks and financial institutions still did kind of the multi-year training programs where you would rotate out. And I actually started with Merrill Lynch Credit. And so I, I spent a couple of years in a credit program at Merrill. And, you know, it's interesting. I, I still say today, if you want to be a good equity investor, you you really need to probably have a good foundation in, in credit training. And And I think part of that is just understanding what can go wrong. I always say, you know, equity investors are uh, optimists by nature. <laughs> Credit people are a little bit more glasses half full, but you know, it was it was a great training ground for me. I spent you know time in in kind of the workout group and the underwriting group, and you know the the kind of the recap area, and you know seeing the effect that it had on equity when things didn't go right, and. You know, after that, I actually ended up getting my Series 7 at Merrill, and then uh, I decided I wanted to be a financial advisor. I mistakenly thought that that was going to be uh, easier. <laughs> you know, you always see these advisors who have been doing it for 30 years, and you don't realize what they had to do for the first 30. But uh, I, I actually ended up with a wonderful career as a financial advisor, built a nice book, and worked with a partner and that actually gave me some learnings along the way because the partnership ultimately didn't work out. We're still friends, but I think it gave me more empathy for what I see in this business and, and the importance of, you know, making sure that there's transparency and honesty, uh, you know, when you're working with people. And um, yeah, I, I was, I was dumb enough to get into uh, non-productive kind of management roles or non-producing management roles had a wonderful career. I ended up at AG Edwards and Wells Fargo uh, through the acquisition for about 12, 13 years. And then I actually met Howard about, I guess it was about three or four years ago. It was actually with the sale process for HPM Partners. And we got introduced and, uh, you know, he's just a fantastic human being as his partner, Barry Friedberg. And uh, I think he thought my background and experience was interesting. And uh, here we are. 
That's pretty neat. So, uh, you know, when you mentioned yeah. A.G. Edwards, the, what I've heard about yeah. that firm and, and just kind of historically people always reference it yeah. this way, just sort of the fraternal slash collegial yeah. family type was, of feel. Yeah. And I think one of the greatest compliments we ever got is an advisor who joined yeah. us who spent most of his career at A.G. Edwards. He said the last time I sat in the yeah. conference and felt this way was at A.G. Edwards. Yeah. So it seemed like they just had a great service oriented, family oriented culture there. It, it was. I mean, it was crazy. I, I was there when Ben Edwards was still running the firm. And it, at the time, it was the sixth largest kind of, you know, wirehouse junior, but it was the sixth uh, largest kind of broker dealer in the country. And I think 15,000 advisors, but it still felt like, you know, it was run by the family. You know, it, as crazy as it was, there was no production grid. When I started, it was a flat 40% payout. And there was no products. There was no grid. It was a kind of a two-page document, but it boiled down to that. And it was, you know, it's just a wonderful place to work. And unfortunately, I was I was there when it became uh, Wachovia first, and and I was under a different CEO. Bennett retired at the time, but uh, it is funny when you bump into people, whether they be at Wells Fargo or or other broker dealers. You know, you hear it a lot with Prescott Ball and, and Cleveland. A lot of the old kind of, you know, what were considered regional broker dealers just you know, the affinity for those organizations. And I think it goes back to what you guys have been building at Stratos, which is just kind of that transparent, honest, friendly, you know, everybody's pulling together and everybody wants to see everybody else succeed, which, you know, unfortunately, you know, we just don't see enough of in this industry right now. No, I I agree. And so from Wells Fargo, was there a stint at Schwab before you and Howard connected and decided to work together? Yeah, I, I'd been fortunate enough to to know uh, Walt Benger, and I ended up at Schwab for uh, actually five years. Uh, I was in the retail side, and uh, a wonderful organization. I mean, Walt Benger is, in my opinion, probably up there with Jamie Dimon as one of the kind of smartest, savviest CEOs in financial services. You know, Walt coming out of 08 saw the need to build the bank and you know, saw what was going to happen to the commission model. So I enjoyed that. It gave me uh, a good introduction to really the RA space and, and the custody world and seeing that, that lens and so on. So I was actually at a, uh, a regional broker dealer doing M&A and strategic business development uh, called Hillier Lions, which I'm sure you're familiar with. It's now part of uh, R.W. Baird. But that business at the time was owned by Houchins, which was kind of another family office uh, slash ESOP. And that's where I got to meet Howard. Yeah, yeah it's funny. It's a small world how paths cross. A guy who sat on our advisory board and has been a good friend, he actually ran the retail side of Schwab for a long time. And he and Walt both came from a small pension yeah. consulting yeah, company right in our back in Cleveland. Correct. Correct. Yeah, yeah no, I, I, I actually know Ben. He's a wonderful human being. And yes. um, yeah, it, it is. And, and Walt's kids, I think, still still go to kind of or did uh, when I was there at college in, in Cleveland. They always had a very close tie to that community. So as you find yourself now at Emigrant Partners, I think you've got a really, really neat role. I think you also have a very broad lens. You guys are looking at lots of opportunities. I guess the first thing I'd ask, and I think most of our folks who uh, listen in are advisors, and as some of them think about liquidity, there are some, I learned, very stark differences between private equity firms and what I would call sort of more patient capital as it relates to time horizons. And how would you, with a broad brush, sort of help people differentiate the types of folks they could potentially partner with if they look to have some form of liquidity? 
Yeah, I mean, what what really attracted me to immigrant was I, I always say, you know, immigrant is really a single family office that owns an operating bank. And when I meet with advisors, you know, very often, you know, I, I kind of get asked the same question. And I said, you know, if you really want to cut through it and you really un- want to understand it, you need to take either myself out of the equation or whomever else you're facing at that organization and look to where do they get their money? Because, you know, whether you're talking about a focus or a high tower or just a private equity firm or so on, understanding where that ultimate, where that financing comes in for that vehicle really gives you a much better idea of what their goals are. Private equity firms are very transparent. I will say that they raise money from limited partners. They deploy it over a couple of years. They, you know, harvest it. And, you know, that's why most private equity fund lives are, you know, five to seven years. And that's kind of the term of, the, of you know, the capital. And they're really focused on equity appreciation. And they're focused on that because their time horizon is shorter. You know, they're not really worried about kind of cash distributions or, or that piece of it. Um, you know, conversely with family offices, you know, family offices hate to pay taxes. <laughs> so, you know, they generally, you know, don't like to sell things. It's longer, more sophisticated capital. And, you know, is, is you know, to get that return. And, and I would say almost every kind of private market investor, whether it's a private equity firm or, or a family office or, you know, any of those investors, you know, they're always looking at the same kind of return profile, which, you know, call it low to mid teens. Some private equity firms are looking for 30%, but most people you can feel pretty confident are are looking for a return in that range. So, you know, I always say, look, you you may love me, you may not, but you may, and, and we may get along, but, you know, you have to understand, you know, who I represent, what their ultimate goals are, I always get, you know, very excited when people start asking me questions about that because it it tells me that they're thinking about this as, you know, if they were in the buyer's shoes and so on. So I I think it is important to to understand that. I think, you know, even when you look at the private ownership of of any of the firms that we're invested in and, and Stratos included, I think that that makes it, you know, very exciting. Because you've got, you know, long-term kind of patient capital with a privately owned business that, you know, the voting and and the control is still run by the people who started it. And, you know, that's important when it comes down to decision making. You know, those decisions are made by the people that built the business and are running the business and understand it most intimately, not by, you know, a private equity sponsor or a strategic who has designs of their own. So I, I think that that's usually the best advice I give, whether it's an advisor or a firm or anything is to really understand where that capital is coming from and what their intent is. You know, what do they, what do they want out of the transaction? I, I'm always surprised you asked me that question when we met and, and I'm, I'm always amazed that more people don't ask. They always, you know, want to tell me what they want, which is great. We, you know, we need to know that, but it's, it's incredibly important to understand what the person on the other side wants because, you know, understanding that answer and being able to put it into context, you know, is probably the most helpful thing in terms of being able to evaluate, you know, any partner, but I would say, you know, particularly a capital partner. 
Yeah, and it's funny. So I, you know, every day, literally now, and it seems like in the last couple of months, maybe even at an increased cadence, I'm having conversations with folks who are thinking about a potential minority sale and taking chips off the table. And there are yeah. some that are full sales, but more minority. Yeah. And they typically ask because they're used to, and I won't mention any names, they're used to some of the firms out there in yeah. the industry. They say, what's your deal? Yeah. And my response is, we yeah. don't have a deal. Talk to me about what it is <laughs> right. that you're trying to accomplish. And let's see if that's something right. that we can collaborate on to meet your objectives, you know. So I think that that flexibility is super, super important. And when it's, you know, when the conversation is centric to what they're trying to accomplish and, you know, is it, is it the capital? Is it growth? Is it sort of one generation passing the baton on to the next? You can get into some really interesting dialogue. And I do think that that alignment is so, so important to make sure that what you're trying to accomplish at Emigrant aligns with, you know, the firms that you're investing in relative to time frame, relative to objectives, relative to culture and, and all that stuff. Yeah, no, uh, I, I, I think that, you know, that's what I loved about when, when, you know, we brought out the management team and had this opportunity to start making investments on our own was it's very rare that you find someone that has kind of the scale of the network that, that we do paired with the ability to kind of tailor a transaction. Because, you know, like you said, no, you know, yes, all these businesses look somewhat similar to an outsider. But when you get into them, as you said, the driving considerations of the founding principles and the next gen, I mean, we we spend as much time with the next generation and and the majority of our investments and and the diligence processes as we do with the founders. Because we always say, I'm investing with you, but ultimately they're going to be running the business and and understanding that they like us and they know us and you know, they want the same thing because we've also on the flip side seen a number of organizations that I'm sure you have too, particularly in the last few years, get torn apart because people weren't open and honest about what they wanted and and how they wanted to achieve it. And we've seen firms literally just come apart at the seams. And I think most of it could have been avoided, but, you know, it's unfortunate. So, you know, knowing that you get a lot of looks based on the fact that you guys have a great name and a great brand and a great reputation, and you've also got a really successful network as a team. For those out there in the market who are thinking about becoming investors, obviously, perhaps not at the level that you guys invest, what are the couple key attributes? How do you sort of differentiate, you know, firms that you want to take another look at and ultimately those that you may partner with versus others that are running a nice business, but maybe not as attractive as far as the key box? What do those couple key boxes look like? You know, I, I think there's a couple of things that, that I would say kind of jokingly turned me on. You know, one is, you know, just transparency in the conversations around what everybody's trying to achieve. I think more often than not, advisors actually don't like talking about money. You know, it's important. Uh, you know, we should talk about it. But I think at the firm level, you know, the, the thing that we really spend the most time on, and I would say it, it probably scuttles, you know, nine and a half out of 10 firms that we look at, is if you strip away the market, and you look at it on a client basis and just, you know, on, a, on an asset X market, are they growing? And, and I think it's, it's almost the dirty little secret in this industry that the vast majority of firms are not growing. You know, I, I think, you know, I've seen $2 billion lifestyle businesses and that's fine, but we've had a, a unprecedented run in the equity markets over the last 10 years. I mean, so, you know, that's one of the first things is when we strip it back and, and we just look at the raw numbers, are you growing your business? Are you bringing in more clients? Is the average age of your clientele getting older every year by more than a year? 
And that always stumps a lot of people when you say it that way. They're like, I don't understand that question. You're like, well, I'll think about it. Uh, but, you know, are, are they growing their business? Are they reinvesting? And, and, you know, do they want a partnership? You know, I mean, it's fine to just make an investment. But, you know, if you're someone like us where you're minority, you're non-voting, you're non-involved in the day-to-day of the business, you know, you, you're really investing in people. I mean, you kind of said it earlier in the podcast. It's, it's relationship-based. I mean, that's really ultimately kind of the, the smell test for us is, you know, do we like the people? Do we feel like, you know, we're going to find common ground? You know, are we trying to row in the same direction? Or, you know, do we want to get all these things done? And, you know, I, I wish I could say, you know, five out of 10 firms are that way. But, you know, it's it's probably one out of 20 that we look at that, you know, everybody seems really engaged. The other thing that, that is very telling and it's just natural to our structure is, you know, because we're always in the minority, therefore, the principals always have more skin in the game. And I, I, I always love people. And, and, you know, you can see it with your organization, you know, just from that initial meeting all the way through, you know, the, these are people that are willing to bet on themselves. And, and, you know, that's what you need in this business because people are probably tired of hearing me say it. And we've already started to see it play out in an accelerated format with, with COVID. But, you know, the, the next 10 years are not going to be like the last. And, and, you know, how a lot of firms got by the last 10 years, I think that's what made the, the opportunity to partner with Stratos so exciting for us was what you guys were offering advisors in, in terms of not just the economics, but just the partnership, you know, being able to help them grow their business. Because there's a lot of great people out there that with some direction and some, some you know, added resources could really take their firm to the next level. So, you know, even at ours, you know, we recently announced another investment in our firm named Parallel. And it was a similar kind of reaction when we met the principals. And we actually met all 26 partners. And you know, everybody was really engaged about growing. And, and I wish I saw that more. Uh, it would give us more firms to, to really go after. But, you know, at, at the end of the day, like I said, it's, it's you know, one out of 20 that we see and, and out of the industry as a whole, it's, it's a lot less than that. Yeah, I think you, you hit a lot of good points. I mean, the market has masked a lot of sins over the last 10 years. So you could have firms that yeah. on the surface might appear healthier than they really are, but whether or not there was a, yeah. a sort of a, a disciplined business engine driving that, or if they were just sort of coasting along and riding the wave. And I think when you get into a more tumultuous times, it might be hard for some, but then I think the quality organizations ought to stand out more. And it, and I think yeah. part of it, Carl, is this whole note, this difference of consolidation versus concentration. We're not really a consolidating yeah. industry. There no. are more and more RIAs out there every year. Yeah. The difference is concentration. Fewer of them, yeah. right? To your point, the ones who are ex- yeah. executing with discipline are growing at a much more rapid pace and getting, you know, not to the point where you see it like in banking, but I think you're going to find fewer and fewer firms over time with massive amounts of assets. And it's kind of picking yeah. those winners that will grow, you know, yeah. regardless of market conditions that I think we need to yeah. look at on a smaller scale. And maybe you guys are looking at that on a more grand scale. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, it's funny because when we, we know a lot of the private equity partners out there and ones that are interested in investing, ones that are investing. And, you know, I, I think fundamentally their thesis is a little bit flawed, but that's one of the things that they always say is, well, it's a consolidating industry. I said, well, actually, if you look at the numbers, it's deconsolidating. It's kind of, it's bleeding off of the wirehouses and the independent broker dealers and so on. And, and to your point, there's more and more of these firms every year. And, and I think, you know, years ago, a lot of people had made bets that, you know, all these small firms are going to go out of business and there's going to be, 
you know, 20 regional firms and that's it. And, you know, what nobody saw similar to almost every other industry that sees this is technology. You know, you, you can run a really wonderful practice with, you know, 100, 200, 300 million dollars. But, you know, you have to do it with somebody. It's very hard to do on your own. But yeah, when we strip the numbers away, it's, it's startling, you know, how many big firms are not really growing. So let me ask you a question. So if, if I'm sitting out here, I have not had an event, I've had some growth, and I want to think about, you know, there was a guy in my study group, he said he was building his firm every year. He, was, yeah. he acted as if he was building it for sale, wanting to sort of build yeah. on the story, build on the results, build on this deck that he would someday show. What, what kind of advice yeah. would you give to folks who have not had a liquidity yeah. event, but maybe the next three to five years will want to? How do they present themselves in the most favorable light? And because it's a process yeah. and not an event, a point in time, what are the things that they should be doing along the way to make their businesses more attractive to potential suitors? So, so this is going to sound like a softball because I just literally used you as an example with someone else that I did another podcast with last week. But, you know, as, as you know, this idea of, you know, you, you should always be running your business as if it's, it's not a hobby or, you know, kind of a, a personal family business. And what I mean by that is, you know, nobody likes to see a lot of adjustments to, to, you know, uh, you know, expenses, you know, they don't like to see adjusted EBITDA that, you know, run your business as if it's a professional organization. I do recommend that people, if they can reserve cash and, and have that available because generally when, when you want it and want to deploy it in markets like this, it's when it's hardest to get credit. You know, make sure that you do start distributing your equity. I always say, you know, you don't have to sell to us, but you got to start selling to somebody at some point. And, you know, I think that we see too many firms that have too much equity owned by too few people. And, you know, that's generally a warning sign. You know, for us is there's, there's really only one or two stakeholders in the entire organization. And, and part of that is, again, the last 10 years have been so great that there was no reason to ever sell because every year it was like owning a stock that went up. And why would you ever sell? But, you know, I, I always tell people, you know, look, you're actually going to get a higher multiple on your business. If a buyer can look at it and see that you professionalize the management, you have number of stakeholders in the business. There's, you know, if, if you get hit by a pie truck tomorrow, the business goes on you know, run it that way. We still see, and I'm sure you do too, a lot of billion dollar businesses where the founding principal still does all the client meetings. And, you know, I've I've met a lot of firms that are like, oh, we're adding clients, you know, we're doing great. And it's like, okay. And then you diligence and you talk to some of the clients and they're like, no, I've really never met anybody else there. You know, I know Bob and Bob's been, <laughs> it's like, okay, well, Bob, this is a great lifestyle business and you, you've grown it and you've done it nicely, but this is not a business that you can tell to anybody. And so I, I think just, you know, doing M&A prep for people, having the right operations and kind of technology stack, having the right people on board, multiple stakeholders, running the P&L like it's, you know, your business and there aren't 50 or 100% adjustments to EBITDA, having cash on the balance sheet, you know, just, it sounds like basic blocking and tackling things. But, you know, more often than not, people that started in this industry didn't set out to be business owners. You know, they set out to do something independently of, of their former employer, and they've been doing it and patching it together and so on. But, you know, they really just, they've been running it the way that, you know, so that's generally the advice I try and give folks. 
Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff there, and I think we should just spend a minute on it. So I yeah. really didn't th- think about the first one, and I probably ought to have, but you know, no one likes to see a ton of adjustments, so all of a sudden your EBITDA is, yeah. is up 60% <laughs> with all the addbacks. And, I'll, yeah. and I'll, it's, it's interesting. It's a philosophical thing, right? I never put any yeah. stuff that should have been put through the business I didn't want to put in because we had other shareholders. Yeah. I was just always very right. mindful of running a tight, yeah. you know, business and being yeah. thoughtful. And I've always made the jokes about staying in a hotel for 150 bucks, not 450 <laughs> because, you know, a yeah. hundred other people had money invested in this company. And, yeah. but it's really interesting. So don't treat it so much like your personal pocketbook that you have to explain to somebody why there's such a disparity between what it really could earn versus what it does. It's, it's a great yeah. point. The building up cash. I love that, you know, mindset. As yeah. you know, we've had a percentage of our earnings retained for for years and yeah. it allows you to have dry powder to really capitalize yeah. and real businesses. Yeah. I mean, they have working capital. They don't distribute every penny and start yeah. at zero again the next year. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. I, I also like the fact that you talked about distributing not only equity, but responsibility, right? So, yeah. you know, we had close to a hundred shareholders and every year folks who had been on and been meaningful had gotten multiple bites at the apple. And so we had a lot of people that had skin in the game and owned the business and not only distributing equity, but distributing responsibility. If the founder of the yeah. firm is integral in every single aspect, it makes you worry, could it be viable without yeah. the founder? And if I look back at our yeah. early days, I wore lots of hats. If I got hit by a bus today, I think people would be sad, right. but our business development yeah. operates effectively in my absence. Our finance group, yeah. our you know, every aspect of the business would be perfectly fine yeah. because it's departments and, you know, it's it's not down to a person influencing and driving everything. So those are great, great takeaways. Well, you know, it's funny. So when you had the opportunity to meet with Howard and Barry, I, I you know, I had a chance to talk to Howard afterward. Uh, you know, we said it was a great lunch. It was wonderful to meet him. He's an amazing guy. And, and Howard, you know, basically said, you know, I, I love the fact that he said, if something happened to me tomorrow, we wouldn't grow as fast, but we would still grow. And, and, you know, that stuck with me. It stuck with him because that's, that's the answer you're looking for. You know, it's, it's fine for you to, you know, have a strong role in the firm. But, you know, again, if you're trying to build a business that eventually will allow you to, you know, sit on a beach and, and, you know, so on, well, you know, you need to, you need to, like you said, distribute the responsibility, not just the equity and vice versa. You can't just, you know, distribute the the responsibility and not the equity. So, you know, the two go hand in hand and it's, I mean, they're great points. And I I wish just more people would, would think about that every year when they do kind of their annual, you know, business plan. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's this whole mentality, which is really kind of fundamental to what we try to talk about on the podcast, the evolution from an advisor to a CEO. You could be a great, great advisor, yeah. but are you in fact running yeah. a business? Are you creating a business that could have enduring value or are you just making a terrific yeah. income and serving clients? Well, it's okay, but there's a stark difference right. between one and the other and recognizing yep. it and investing and making changes to build an enduring business that could last long beyond you yeah. is really, I think, the call to action. Uh, yeah. So with that yeah. said, any final words of wisdom? Again, I know that you just you <laughs> see a lot in the marketplace. You're really, yeah. really well regarded, not only for the business that you're running, but yeah. for the way that you run it. Any final words of advice before you share your your musicality with our yeah. listeners? <laughs> well, you know, I, I the thing that I, I would tell most people is, you know, again, you know, you can start selling the equity, the responsibility, all that. But, you know, one of the things is, 
just start finding people in this industry that you know, you like, you trust and, and start learning from them, you know, start meeting with people. You know, I'm always happiest when I, I've, you know, kind of signed an LOI and done a deal with a firm that says we talk to everybody. You know, it wasn't, you know, oh, we bumped into you. And, and I, I always say, look, if, if you know, you, you need to meet with everybody before you make a decision. You know, this, this is a long-term relationship. This isn't a high-pressure sales pitch. So, you know, get out there and, and hear the different pitches and, and see what people are doing. And, and, you know, even beyond the capital side, just try and learn. You know, it's always amazing to me how many people, yourself included, are extremely generous with their time to other people in the industry. And take advantage of it. You know, I mean, a lot of us have, have bumped our heads and, and, you know, made huge mistakes. And, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, I can see that coming. But, you know, I, I do think that a lot of firms would be benefited by just, you know, getting out there, socializing with other RIA owners more, really understanding what's out there and, and how the business is changing. Because make no mistake, it's it's changing. No, it's it's great advice. And and so I'll thank you for being on the podcast today. I want to thank you for your friendship yeah. and for your partnership. So I just want to wish you continued success and then use this as a segue to to the musical segment of podcast karaoke. So that's it. We just did. I don't know how it goes to you. Yeah. I don't know it. I don't know it. Yeah, like I don't care, baby. By the, baby, by the way, because I'm happy I belong. If you feel like a room without a roof, I'm happy I belong. If you feel like happiness is the truth. I'm happy clap along if you know what happiness is to you. Cause I'm happy clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. It comes bad news talking this and that. <laughs> Give me all you got. Don't hold it back. <laughs> all right, this is crazy. All right, what's our other song choice? That's awesome. <laughs> this sounds great. Oh, no, this sounds great. Let's try. What was the other song? Thanks for listening to the Evolving Advisor. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and share it with your colleagues. And if you would like to talk about succession planning or practice acquisitions, please drop us a line. We would love to help you in any way we can.